Uh, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, and we're going to be in reading from verses 16 through 23, but what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to use all of the narrative so far in the Gospel of Matthew, which actually begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and use it to help us understand what we're focusing on this morning in seeing God in the midst of suffering. Uh, we, this is kind of a mini two-part series within our series as a whole of Tell Me the Story of Jesus. If you weren't with us last week, we had microphone malfunctions like right in the middle of it. I don't know what happened, but uh, we talked about how, you know, God is good and God is kind and he is merciful and loving. But at the same time, evil exists in this world. And so how do we reconcile the goodness of God and the love of God while we deal with evil and evil things that we see on the news or through acts of people? And so that was our goal last week. If you missed that, um, we can get together and talk. I tried to get it up there, but like I said, we had a little malfunction with electronic devices. Um, but we're using a passage in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 23 as our key passage. And the passage concerns when the wise men just left Bethlehem after they visited Mary and Joseph and little child Jesus in a home in Bethlehem. And Herod gave them orders to come back to him to tell him where he could go to find the child so that he could worship him as well. But God came to the wise men in a dream and said, you don't go back to Herod. And so they went another way, which caused Herod to issue a decree that all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region should be destroyed that were two years and under. And this was Herod's, Herod's goal was to get a hold of baby Jesus or child Jesus and destroy him. So our passage, it contains a lot of evil. It contains a lot of pain and suffering. There's the suffering of inconvenience. There's the pain of death. There's the suffering of leaving what people know or what we know, the pain of loss. There's the evil that people have to endure because of other individuals who are not wanting to give up the power that they have or, or fear losing their power. And when it comes to suffering, it's a diff difficult subject because we all experience suffering on different levels. Some of us experience suffering through a loss of a job, some through a loss of a loved one. Some of us experience suffering through a loss of a family pet, and we experience pain when we go through illnesses and things like that, some through diseases or medical mishaps. Some of us experience suffering and pain when appliances or cars and vehicles stop working. I mean, those are not very pleasing times, and so there are levels of suffering that we all have to endure and this passage this morning, I hope what we see is how God is in the midst and is faithful to those things. One thing that is not the goal this morning is to say that if you react to suffering in a certain way, that you're overreacting. Um, that there's a wrong way to react to pain and suffering and evil in this world. Rather, the point or goal today is to see God in the midst of the suffering and understand that he is still good, he is still loving, he is still kind, and he is still with us. Timothy Keller has a book out called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and in it he says that one reason we struggle with pain and suffering is because we have a sinful mentality or a sinful outlook when pain and suffering comes in our life. We actually believe that God owes us a good life. Hence, we cry out to God, why, and God do something. We feel that we are owed better than what we're going through. But Keller then points out, if we look at the biblical standards for our behavior, you think of the golden rule, treat others as you'd want to be treated, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love others as you would want it to be loved. You think of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. 
And then you take those and you consider them against humanity's record against those norms, against God's standards. It may occur to us that the real riddle of evil is not what we thought. Perhaps the real puzzle is why in the light of our behavior compared to God's standards does God allow us so much happiness? I want to begin this morning, you just got to Matthew 2, but I want to begin actually in Philippians chapter 4, and then we're going to come back to Matthew chapter 2. When Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian believers, he wrapped up his letter by speaking of being content in any situation. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound, in and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and, and need. And at this point, does anybody know where Paul wrote this letter from? He was in prison. Anybody know why he was in prison? He was preaching the gospel. He was doing a good thing. He was doing what God had commanded him to do, and yet he found himself in a place of suffering, in a place of pain, a place where he did not want to be. It is from this situation that Paul writes this letter that he tells us not to focus on the circumstance, but instead to focus on Christ. And in that focus, he was able to write in verse 13, I can do all things through him being Christ who strengthens me. In Paul's suffering of being in prison for preaching the gospel, doing what God told him to do, Paul came to this understanding, which he begins the letter of Philippians with, that he is in the midst of this suffering. He is in the midst of this painful situation, all to advance the gospel. See, Paul saw his suffering as a means for someone else's salvation. It is in our weakness, our times of suffering, to which Paul says that we are strong because God is strong. But I have found many people struggle with Christianity because they think that we as Christians never go through pain and suffering. Because many of us are unwilling to share about those times. Sometimes there are things that we're ashamed of that have brought us to suffering and pain. But when believers share about how God used them and helped them endure through pain and suffering, it's when unbelievers realize that we don't have it all figured out. We are not perfect, and we need God and the grace of God every single day of our life. In Philippians, leading to what Paul was writing about being content and doing all things through Christ, he issued this command in verse 6 of chapter 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Anybody get anxious about anything this week? Thank goodness for the grace of God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he goes on in verse 7, The results of such a lifestyle and outlook and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, the point isn't to say that we're not going to suffer, or even that if we become overwhelmed by suffering, that we are a bad Christian and we don't have enough faith. The point is to see God in the midst of suffering so that we can be thankful, we can have peace, and we can still have joy because that is what the Holy Spirit to which God has gifted us with is able to produce no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy is something that is given to us and we are able to produce no matter what happens. Happiness is based upon circumstances that come in our life. 
And so there's a difference. And, and in the midst of suffering, I can have joy and still not be happy. And so let's look at our passage and see how God worked through this hor- horrible event, beginning in Matthew chapter 2. And we're actually going to begin in verse 13. Sorry if I said 16 earlier. Now when they, they speaking of the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene, and the he there speaking of Jesus Christ. Again, our passage picks up right when the wise men have returned home without telling Herod about what they knew concerning where Jesus could be found. It appears on the same night, according to our passage, was the night that God came in a dream to Joseph to warn him about what Herod was planning to do the next day or the next couple days. It's a reminder to us right here in the passage that the suffering and the evil and the pain that we encounter in this life, we never encounter it alone as God's children. God was in the midst of this, and God knew what was on the horizon, and God warned Joseph about it. This event did not surprise God at all, and our suffering doesn't surprise God at all. But what we see in the first thing in this passage is the guidance of God in the midst of suffering. Again, the narrative or the story begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Before that is the genealogy speaking of Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant and how he was from uh, the family of the Jewish people and he was the Messiah they've been waiting for. In verse 18 of chapter 1, Matthew begins what we would call the story of Jesus. And it's in, from verse 18 to the end of chapter 2, we find God speaking five different times through the acts of dreams to his people. The very first time it occurs in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, when God, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when God comes to Joseph and speaks to Joseph through a dream, in a dream, you can go through and you can just highlight that, in a dream, five times, about taking Mary as his child. And what we see about the guidance of God is God was guiding Joseph to this moment, which is in our passage. The second time God speaks in a dream is to the wise men concerning them not going back to Herod, but to go home a different way. And we see God was guiding in the midst of the moment. The third time is within our passage here when God speaks to Joseph about fleeing to Egypt. And we see God was guiding around the moment. 
The fourth time, God again speaks to Joseph, this time in Exodus about re, or in Egypt about returning to Israel, and God was guiding through the moment. Finally, we see God speaking the fifth time to Joseph over Joseph's fears about not returning to the land of Judea, but instead settling in Nazareth, and we see that God guided to the end of a moment. It's through the dreams from Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to the end of chapter 2, we see God guides to, in, around, through, and to the end of all of our suffering. The point is God was in the midst of all of it. And when we use the gospel of Luke, which is what we're going to start doing with this, this series, is taking the gospels and putting them together. When we use the gospel of Luke, we see where God allowed Mary and Joseph and Jesus to settle in Nazareth was actually where this whole thing started with. God spoke to Mary when she was in Nazareth. God came to Joseph when he was in Nazareth. And now, after they've gone through the midst of the suffering, they return back to their or, or original home, and no doubt they return stronger than when they left. It might seem odd when we read this passage that so many people, including Joseph, four times would respond to a dream in this way. But if you read through the scriptures, you see that there's biblically warranted reason to hearing God through dreams. Now, I'm not saying all of our dreams is God speaking to us, because I know some of us probably have some really strange dreams. I had one last night, and I don't understand it. I'll have to go talk to about the other individual that was in that dream with me. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that sounded right, but anyway. <laughs> It was a friend. It was a friend. <laughs> a friendly dream, yeah, that we got to figure out. But what we do learn in God speaking through dreams and people responding to God speaking to them is whatever medium God chooses to deliver his guidance to us, we have to listen and be ready for it. It may be at church. It may be at a conference. It may be through his word. It may be you driving down the highway or down the interstate and the spirit of God just, boom, hits you. I have a pastor friend that he's, the church he's at, the only reason he's at that church is because he was driving down the interstate and on a sign there was the name of the city and he felt a compulsion to stop, get out of his car and fall to his knees and tell God, here I am, send me. God can use whatever medium he wants to get our attention and to guide us in this life. The point isn't so much the dreams, but God's spoken word through the dream. When God spoke, People responded in obedience. And God's spoken word is meant to guide us through this life, which can contain pain and suffering and evil. There are times in Scripture where we'll read that God will guide his people around pain and suffering, but God never takes a full detour for us to avoid pain and suffering in life. It's going to happen. Jesus said we're going to endure storms. But the promise we have in the midst of pain and suffering is God is guiding us because God will never leave us as his children. A few years ago, almost 14 now, um, Ethan was born. Um, and uh, we were at a very small community in Illinois. And we were at a church that was just bursting at the seams. Well, in the midst of that, the church was going through a very difficult time. The pastor uh, was being asked to leave. There's a lot of hostility that was growing. We actually had to call in someone from the Illinois Baptist State Association to come and bring reconciliation to try to make sure the church didn't burn to the ground or no one got shot. And I, I don't say that jokingly because I was literally in the foyer when one of the deacons told another deacon, if I see you here again, I'll shoot you. 
that was that kind of gives you a glimpse of this church. Well, in the midst of that, Ethan was just a few months old, and he was crying through the night. I do not envy new parents at all because I still remember sleepless nights. If you're past that, do you remember the sleepless nights? So let's pray for all of our new parents. Um, but Ethan was crying through the night over and over again. It got so bad that um, I eventually would get him out of his crib. I would place him in the car seat. I would go put the car seat in the car, and then I would go drive around for like an hour on the back roads in Illinois just so he would fall asleep. And then I would get him out of the car, still in the car seat, you know, tiptoe, safely t- set him by the couch, and I'd fall asleep on the couch. And that was going on for a long time, and it got to the point where I was just sleep deprived, and we were tired because Jamie was home with him all day, and, and he was like, he was just, you're a blessed child that you're still alive. Um, <laughs> but um, in the midst of that, this church was going through this, destructive phase and so we had that going on at home and trying to figure out being new parents and we had this going on in church and and we had no family that actually lived around us and so I I decided I was going to lift up a prayer because it got the point they asked the pastor to leave and it came down to us what are we going to do are we going to stay and are we going to spiritually fight because that's what was going to entail if we stayed or did we feel God was releasing us and because we wanted to be what where God wanted us to be I began praying, God, guide us. And they gave us about a week to pray about it and, and to get guidance from God, which was nice because some churches just say, you know, tell us right now. So at least we had a week. Well, during that week, I lifted up a Hail Mary pray, prayer. God, if you want us to go, please let Ethan sleep through the night. <laughs> now, do you remember when your child slept through the night the first time and you woke up the next morning? How that fear overtook you? <laughs> you slept through something that, and so I remember running to his crib, and he was still sleeping. I was like, oh, praise Jesus. And we had several nights of blessed sleep. Um, and so we had the meeting that next Sunday, and, and there was the deacons, and the guy from the state association was there. And, and so they asked me, what did I think God was leading us to do? And so I told them this story. And I said, I believe God is, is releasing us, that he's telling us that we need to move on to wherever that may be. And then one deacon actually said, why don't you pray again for him to start crying? <laughs> <laughs> As a parent, you know, I was like, you you never pray for a baby to start crying. But I said it like more biblically, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Um, That's the way I responded to that. But um, it was scary because God was releasing us. We had no leads for another church. We were living in a parsonage that the church owned that they were very clear about. They wanted us out ASAP. And we had uh, a, a new child. We were new parents. Jamie wasn't teaching at the time because she was staying home with Ethan. We were in a new state to which I don't even know if you were certified to teach in Illinois at that moment. And so there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, and we had just gone through pain and suffering, and we didn't know what was going to happen. But what we found in the midst of that is God remained faithful. He took care of us every step of the way. He ended up opening a door quicker than I've ever seen a church open a door for us to land somewhere else. And we found a home, and, and we were able to raise uh, Ethan, and then Abby came. And we saw God just continue to guide us and lead us and bless us and take care of us, even in the midst of uncertainty. And that's what suffering can do. Suffering puts us in a place of uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what to do. I don't know why. But I've seen in my own life how God has done that. And I I want you to know that as a pastor and as a pastor's family, pastors go through pain and suffering. We deal with evil, and I think sometimes we forget that as people, that, oh, well, you know, you're a pastor, and so you don't have to deal with everything that I have to deal with. You know, there was a time 
not too long ago, I got this major infection in my canal where it, it literally caused my left side of my face just, what, I don't even remember what it's called, but it was just like Bell's palsy. I had Bell's palsy. I was, I, I could not stand up without falling down. I could not keep my balance whatsoever. And I was out for two weeks. I mean, I could not get off the couch unless it was to go to the restroom and, and Jamie had to bring me something neat. In the midst of that, we started passing around a stomach bug, which is a blessing when you can't walk to the bathroom. But it was horrible. And then our car, our family car that we relied upon, literally died. I mean, it died. We drove it, and we could salvage the wheels, but that's about all we could do with that car. And then the washer went out within the same period of time. And I had someone come up to me and say, say, Pastor, how are you doing? All right, I guess. And their response was like startled. All right, aren't pastors always supposed to be good? Here's the thing. If being a pastor was the vaccine to pain and suffering, then everyone in here, we should commission you all and ordain you all to be pastors. But that's not the case. We are all going to endure it. We're all going to have to go through it, and, the, and we have to see the, the guidance of God in the midst of it. He's right there. So pray for me and my family. Pray for Jason and his family. Pray for our church leadership. Pray for our worship team because we all go through pain and suffering, and maybe on different levels, but we're all enduring it. And in the midst of pain and suffering, it seems hard to see or hear God's guidance. But the promise of his word is that he is always our shepherd. He is always right there, sometimes with a staff and sometimes with a rod. But he is always there. And sometimes we have to go through the wilderness and the valleys and the dry areas of life so we can learn to depend on God in new ways, in deeper ways, and grow stronger in our relationship with him. Michael Catt writes that God doesn't put us in the wilderness to destroy us, but to develop us. Moses was developed in the wilderness before he could be the leader God needed to bring people out of Egypt. The children of Israel were developed in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus overcame temptations in the wilderness. The wilderness is sometimes depicted as a dry place that we're all going to experience in life. But in the midst of those dry places, we have the well that never runs dry to rely upon. The second thing we see in the midst of suffering in our passage is the faithfulness of God in the midst of suffering. The narrative of Matthew begins, again, in verse 18 of chapter 1 and runs to the end of chapter 2 that we're going to be focusing on. Within these passages, Matthew not only is led to talk about five different dreams where God spoke, but also five different prophecies to which were fulfilled by Jesus and the movement of Jesus' parents. In our own passage from verse 13 to verse 23 of Matthew chapter 2, three of the five prophecies have been fulfilled. In verse 15, he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is taken from the prophet Hosea 11, which is in the Old Testament, and recalls God's love for his people Israel in the time of Exodus. In the midst of this situation, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, was revealing a hope of a new covenant to which God spoke of in the past and was now revealing his faithfulness in the present. This prophecy is connected to the prophecy of verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It reveals the faithfulness of God through his act of mercy upon his people. 
these prophecies are connected to when God brought his people, Israel, out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. David Platt writes that from these two stories, we, re- we see the mercy of God in the Old Testament. He saved his people by bringing miraculous deliverance from Egypt. And then here in Matthew 2, the mercy of God in the New Testament. He saves his people by bringing the messianic deliverance from Egypt. This prophecy was not only to show how Jesus fulfilled it, but also to remind God's people when God worked with Moses and God delivered them from their pain and suffering in Egypt in the past, so God was going to remain faithful once again and to bring deliverance through their pain and suffering in the present, but on a much greater scale through Jesus Christ. We, we see how these two events mirror one another. In the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 19, it says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. When he turned to Exodus chapter 2, verse 19, it says, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian. And the point of comparing these two is each man was visited by God in a place they did not expect God to be. Joseph was visited by God in Egypt. Moses was visited by God where? Burning bush. Very good. Burning bush. That's the right answer. See, God doesn't just speak to us and guide us and reveal his faithfulness when we're at church. He wants an ongoing relationship in which we are communing with him continuously. Again, going back to the parallels, in Matthew, in verse 20, says, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother to go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Going back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 19, God speaks, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Each man was told the threat in their life, the cause of their pain and suffering, had passed. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 21, God says or Joseph, about Joseph, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Then back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and then went back to the land of Egypt. These two events mirror one another. With Moses, God showed his faithfulness to his people by redeeming them from the slavery in Egypt and delivering the law. But here in the New Testament, with Joseph, God showed his faithfulness once again that he was going to redeem his people, but this time through the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it's the second prophecy which is fulfilled in our passage. It's taken from Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, the prophecy there speaks of the death of the innocent. See, God knew this evil was going to happen. But in Jeremiah 31, to which the chapter speaks of and prophesies the deaths of the innocents, it ends with this message of hope. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. It ends with the promise of the Lord's presence being amongst his people and the word of the Lord being in his people. It ends with the promise of forgiveness and restoration. See, because of the faithfulness of God, we can have hope and we can have life no matter the level of pain and suffering that we go through in this life. Because he is faithful. Though this prophecy spoke of the horrendous acts done by Herod there in verse 18, Matthew's original readers were were what type of people? Jews, very good. For all of y'all that said it so loudly, the microphone caught it. Jews, Matthew's original readers, who he wrote to were who? Jews. All right, we're still there. Okay, so they would have known when Matthew was led to use this prophecy in verse 18, they would have known the original text to which it would came from. 
they would have known that this prophecy in Jeremiah 31 speaks of the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people who were living in the midst of pain and suffering. The third prophecy is a little more obscure. It happens in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be, be fulfilled that he would be a Nazarene. It's obscure because, one, it's no particular prophet is mentioned. Instead, it says prophets. It's also obscure because there is no prophecy in the Old Testament which directly says this particular phrase, that Jesus would be a Nazarene. But here's the problem we have. We read this in what language? I like, I may have to start doing this. I like this. We read the Bible in English. I mean, we have to keep in mind that Matthew's original audience was Jewish. Very good. And so the word Nazarene meant something completely different to a Jewish audience than what it would mean to us. It wasn't just a physical location to which Matthew was drawing out to his original audience. The word Nazarene to the Jewish people was linked to the Hebrew word nezer, which means branch and signifies the king from David's line. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 11. Nazarene was also a slang term for the Jewish people, speaking of a very remote and obscure place. It was a derogatory term, which we'll see in a couple weeks. In John chapter 1, verse 46, when Philip goes to Nathanael and says, I have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Anybody remember Nathanael's response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It was a derogatory term. There was a lot of racism and discrimination against anyone from Nazareth. The city of Nazareth speaks of obscurity, contempt, and suffering. That's the image to which Matthew is led to draw out by using that word Nazarene. Platt writes that Nazareth was not a very well-respected place. It was at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, to say the least. Nazarenes were scorned, derided, and generally despised. It is the idea of scorn that is all over the prophets. Maybe most famously in Isaiah 53, where the prophet says of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, and we didn't value him. He will be a Nazarene because he will be scorned. Jesus being a Nazarene is a summary of a theme of all prophetic expectations. It is through these trials and the suffering that Joseph and Mary had to endure. It's through the trials and suffering that Herod brought on that God showed his faithfulness to his word. No matter what we go through in life, God will always be faithful. He can be nothing less. He will always be faithful. And the thing about God's word and his faithfulness to his word, here's the thing, it doesn't require us to believe it for it to be true. God's word is true whether you and I believe it or not. All he does is ask for us to have faith in the truth that exists right here in these pages. And understand he shows his faithfulness. The final thing we see in our passage is the provision of God in the midst of suffering. We can know when we bring all the gospels together that Mary and Joseph were living in poverty. It would seem as we come into Matthew chapter 2, they had begun to build a life in Bethlehem. They had a house. Joseph most likely had a job. Mary and little child Jesus were being provided for. And then what happens? Some wise men show up one night with gifts. And they turn the world upside down. They have to move again. They have to leave their homes and their jobs and the life they've begun to establish. We don't know how long Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were in Egypt, but we do know Herod died in 4 A.D. 
And when he died, his territory was split apart into three areas that his three surviving sons were able to lead over or govern over. Because a lot of other sons of Herod's he killed. Archelaus, who is mentioned in our passage, took over Judea. And he was just as much a monster as his father. He is recorded in historical books as being the worst of the three surviving sons. He only held power for about two years, but it was marked by scandal, brutality, and tyranny. His violence against the people he ruled over was so bad that the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, who did not get along whatsoever, came together and sent report to Rome to have him removed out of office. That's how bad it was. So when Joseph has fears that Archelaus is in charge and where they're returning, it is warranted fear. But the question we have is, how did Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus or child Jesus move so quickly and resettle so quickly if we knew they were not a people of means? This resettling to Egypt and then back to Nazareth would have taken a lot of resources. And many people believe it's because of the gifts to which God provided through the wise men. How was that God provided the means for them to travel safely? When they came back and there was still a threat in Israel, God provided the means to settle in Nazareth, an obscure, out-of-the-way, insignificant village, about 500. Now just think about this. Do you think what happens in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of chapter 2 was something that Mary and Joseph were planning? Hey, we're going to be the parents of God's son. Everything's going to be great now. Just go back and read it this week and see how many times their lives were turned upside down. How many questions that would have been brought. There was inconvenience. There was suffering. There was pain. But God continued to provide. Sometimes it's hard to see the provision of God because what we focus on in the midst of the pain and suffering. But through it all, God gave his word. God brought gifts. He provided provision. He provided a place of refuge in Egypt. He provided a place of protection. He provided a place of peace in Nazareth. And our God is faithful to us just as much as Mary and Joseph. In the midst of our pain and suffering, God gives us his word. He will provide for us in the midst of that. He will provide a place of refuge where we can get away, a place of protection, and ultimately a place of peace. But God's provisions don't always go the way we planned. But they're always there. They're always there. In the midst of pain and suffering, we have to look for his guidance, his faithfulness and provision because God is always at work and God will never abandon us, particularly in our time of need. When we go through these times, maybe we need to step back and refocus and ask these questions. How has God guided me to this moment? How has God guided me through painful times in the past? How is God guiding me right now? How am I seeing God being faithful to me in the midst of this? How is God continuing to provide for me even though I go through this hard time? When we turn our focus from our circumstances to Christ, it will allow us to worship God in the midst of evil and suffering. The greatest way God guides us to his presence is the understanding of what Jesus Christ did for us. The greatest evidence of God's faithfulness is his holy sacrifice for us as sinners. The greatest form of God's provision is found in the forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You may be here going through something and just need to turn your eyes back to Jesus. But maybe you're here and you need to begin a relationship with God because here's what's happened. God has guided you to this moment. He's provided you the opportunity to hear of his love for you. 
and revealed his faithfulness to you found in Jesus Christ because this is the gospel. God created you for a relationship with him. But your sins and my sins ultimately separated from the God that loves us, the God who's faithful, the God who provides, the God who guides. We try to do things to fix that, but we can't fix our sin problem. It is only through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ was born. That's why he had to go through all the things he went through. To pay the price for our sins by dying on the cross and then rising again. The Bible says, and this is the good news, the Bible says it's not about what I do or what I bring to the table. It's about what Jesus did and completed. And when I place my faith in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins, I used to begin relationship with God and given the promise of eternal life with him forever. And I know that no matter what I go through in this life, God will be with me in the midst of it. Maybe you need to come and begin a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe you need to come because you're going through a time and you're having a hard time seeing God in the midst of it and asking God just to open up your eyes and see how he's been faithful and he's guiding and he's providing. I'm going to ask Charlie to come and lead us, or Charlie to come up and lead us. <laughs> you can, bud, if you want. Um, but Charlie's going to be up here standing. If you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to come down and just say, hey, Charlie, I, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven for my sins. How do I do that? He's going to love to pray with you and talk with you about that. Maybe you just need someone to pray with about. You can come up and talk with Charlie, and he'll pray with you as well, or you maybe just need to come and kneel before the Father. Jamie and I are going to lead us in a couple songs of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come and respond. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for bringing us this moment. Thank you, Lord, for your promise of your word that you are faithful. You're with us here. You're providing. You're guiding. You never leave us or forsake us, Father. Nothing can separate us from your love. Help us to rely upon that truth because, Lord, I know we all go through difficult times. We all go through uncertainty just to be able to see your hand in the midst of it. Lord, as we come this time of responding to your word, let it be pleasing to you. Let it be an act of spirit and truth as we worship you. Forgive me if I've gotten you away. Forgive us if we've allowed the tempter to take our focus away from you. But let this time of invitation bring all glory to you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.